From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Author John Potish, documentary filmmaker, is here for the full two hours to talk about the CIA's war against rock. And we'll take your calls in the second hour. Questions and comments as John and I get into the depths of rock legends like Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, Tupac Shakur, and uh, the CIA continuing, perhaps, to target rock musicians and activists. I am uh, coming to you live from the home studio in Thornhill, Ontario tonight, my little studio beneath the stairs, and we are streaming live on our YouTube channel, Strange Planet, tonight. So, John is here to tell us how U.S. intelligence agencies have used drugs to manipulate and ruin the lives of leftist leaders and musicians, including Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Tupac Shakur. Based on his research, John asserts that the U.S. government has had a long-standing practice of importing illegal drugs into the country for the purpose of both generating profit and as a nefarious means of controlling society. And to that end, he laments that widespread drug abuse and addiction has over the years been used by the powers that be to disrupt and diminish social movements which would threaten their control over the populace. John has been featured on C-SPAN's American History TV and has been interviewed on dozens of radio stations around the United States and abroad. His work has also been published in the Baltimore Chronicle, the City Paper, Covert Action Quarterly, Rock Creek Free Press, and Z Magazine. He has worked counseling people with mental health issues and addictions for over 25 years. In May 2015, John released his book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Now, this book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, has now been turned into a feature-length documentary film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA War on Musicians and Activists, and John Potish, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on again, Rich. And uh, congratulations uh, on the documentary film. First of all, Thanks a lot. Uh, when was it released and, and how can people see it? It was just released January 29th, and people can see it. They can rent it on places like Vudu and Vimeo and also iTunes. And they can buy it from Best Buy, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. And so uh, there's other places you can rent it and buy it also, but those are just a few of them. And, you know, if you, you want to find out more about those places, you can go to uh, drugsasweapons.com. The movie website is drugsasweaponsmovie.com, but they're both linked to each other, so you can get to them both easily from each other. So, yeah, that's, that's where you can get it right now. Let me ask you about the making of the film, because it's based on the book. Is there anything new in the film that's not in the book? Yeah, there is some new stuff. It's just great to get some people talking you know, about what I present in the book, but some of the new stuff includes I got footage of Wouter Basson, the head of chemical and biological warfare for South Africa when it was under apartheid, 
admitting that he had been working with Porton Down and Fort Detrick, the two chemical warfare laboratories for England and the United States. So that's new. There's some other new stuff related to just eyewitness accounts of what happened to Robert F. Kennedy. Journalists, for example, saying, I saw him no closer than two to three feet, you know, Sirhan Sirhan, and I saw a guard take out his gun and shoot right behind to the right and behind of Robert F. Kennedy when he was assassinated. And so just getting some of that kind of direct coverage is is new. There is some other new stuff. I also found footage of one of the former president of the American Pathologist Association, Cyril Wecht, saying that he thinks that Kurt Cobain's uh, murder was a staged suicide. You know, it was a murder that made it look like a suicide. He said that for local Pittsburgh news station, and he's been on every major you know, news program in the country. He's in his early 80s now, but he's very well known in the United States, Cyril Wecht. So things like that are just some new stuff that I found after I wrote the book. Well, since the book came out in 2015, of course, we've lost some other great musicians mm-hmm. like Chester Bennington from yeah. uh, Lincoln Park and Chris Cornell from Audio Slave. I don't know if they're included in the film, but would you group those in under the suspicious category, even though they were supposedly suicides? Well, I would just because I I heard some of the activist work they were doing. I heard a little bit more about their past, but I couldn't put them in the film because I just hadn't done enough research on them to be conclusive enough. And, you know, the book is over 400 pages long, and uh, so in the film can only be about be two hours length it's got to be about 60 pages you know of dialogue and uh so I, I really couldn't go over that so it's hard to put new people like that in the film when i have enough stuff on who i have in the film already of course well perhaps there'll be a, a volume two the film begins as does the book talking about uh, really the opium trade mm-hmm. uh, take us back to i guess we're talking what mid-1800s Right, so it built up, that opium trade built up uh, to the point where it was huge in the mid-1800s, but China could not deal with it anymore and did not want all that opium, illegal opium trading going on in its country because it saw its populace getting addicted nationwide, and so it, it tried to ban the opium trade. And so England fought two wars uh, on behalf of the opium traders, and China lost those wars, and so... Those kinds of wars, you know, drug wars and opium wars, uh, you could see later to today, basically, over Vietnam and over Afghanistan, which Vietnam being the golden triangle for opium, which overlaps a section of China also, and Afghanistan being the golden crescent for opium fields, for poppy fields that produce opium. And so, um, you know, those are America's two longest wars, and it's no coincidence that they uh, were in the two best regions for growing poppies that produce opium and heroin and so i show the evidence of of why that is and uh how basically they were fighting over these great resources for the opium that you can turn into heroin to sedate and divide the masses and that's actually a quote from former u.s attorney ramsey clark who when i asked him about what he thinks drugs are used for by our government he says to sedate and divide the masses so that's the basic theme of the book but I show the evidence of how several families, a number of basically intermarried families, were involved in the opium trade with the British East India Company. And that goes from 
the 1700s onwards. But they rose up uh, as the Russells, the Pierponts, the you know the Lowe's, the uh, Cabots, and they were all intermarried. Um, the Russells were the biggest opium traders, but a number of these families were into opium trading and made huge you know huge uh, amounts of money with it. And then started the uh, Ivy League colleges with that money. So I show uh, New York Times best-selling author James Bradley in the film, and so that's also some new stuff because he says he covers the fact he, he had written the book uh, Flags of Our Fathers, which was made into a Clint Eastwood movie, and he he his next book after that was called The Imperial Cruise, and the Imperial Cruise documents how. Uh, Basically, most of the Ivy League colleges were founded by families who made their richest in opium money. And so a lot of the um, secret societies like Skull and Bones, and there's a secret society in each, um, each Ivy League college, like Harvard had the Porcelain Club. And so in the secret societies, they would bestow uh, each member, uh, you know, and, and at the Skull and Bones, for example, is the equivalent of about $220,000 when they graduated. Um, so they started off incredibly, you know, wealthy when they graduated, and then they became, they rose up in society even more with all their connections to, you know, basically have very high positions in our society. The Bushes graduated from, uh, you know, Skull and Bones, Yale and Skull and Bones, a number of them, uh, the Pierponts, um, with John Pierpont Morgan, J.P. Morgan, and uh, the, a lot of number of the Rockefellers also, and so... Yeah, I just traced how that that led, and HS, HSBC is actually the third largest bank in the world, and J.P. Morgan Chase, started by the Rockefellers, and J.P. Morgan uh, is the wealthy is the top bank in the world. So it just shows where you know what they rose up to and where that opium money led to for these people. When the establishment decided to start targeting activists, musicians, and so forth, how does that connect to, let's say? opium, or illicit drugs in general. Connect the dots for us. Sure. So when it came to uh, the civil rights movement, for example, you know, there was, um, there was a number of ways that they were targeted. Well, one way was during the Vietnam War, when it started, you had whistleblowers like John Stockwell talk about how his fellow agents were flying out of Vietnam with loads of opium. And even... Judy Woodruff of was it Face I think it was Face the Nation has said that in the uh, special documentary on the, the fact that they have CIA documents showing and stating that they were actually flying the heroin from Vietnam straight into the United States, and I show that that heroin was actually targeting and being distributed in black communities during the Civil Rights Movement and during the anti-Vietnam War movement, and so that really had a, a a terrible effect on those communities in many ways. I mean, it hurt activists, it hurt black communities in general, but also the black civil rights movement, because heroin addiction doesn't just affect one person, it affects a family, then ends up affecting the whole community. And that's some of the ways that they used it against uh, communities. And the same thing happened later with uh, when they were involved in different wars down in uh, Latin American countries with the cocaine and so that's some of how they used it. But um, when it came to LSD, I show how they used that against the supporters of the civil rights movement. A, a number of the white activists, like the Freedom Riders, that were coming from a number of different areas in the country, but in a huge way from the New York region. So they set up this huge base for popularizing LSD at the Millbrook Mansion, 
the mansion of the family that owned Gough Oil and Mellon Bank, the William Mellon Hitchcock's mansion. And they set up uh, former professor Timothy Leary at that mansion and sent in a bunch of MKUltra scientists to basically try out different psychedelics on loads of people that were drawn up there or lured up there. And so that was part of Project MKUltra, which is really the umbrella project for using drugs as unconventional weapons. And that's in the CIA documents on MKUltra. And, um, the, you know, one of the top drugs they were using was LSD, but they used uh, two or three dozen different drugs they had tested on Edgewood Arsenal soldiers for this purpose. There was an incident in a, an idyllic little village in France, I believe, around 1951. I don't know if they aerosoled. No, they, did they put it in the bread supply? How did they deliver this LSD to the unsuspecting citizens of this little town? Yeah, it was believed that they actually did aerosol the town, and people thought it was just mold in bread. But, um, you know, they basically dosed much of the town with LSD, and, and the town kind of lost their minds tripping so much on LSD. Yeah, that was a um, horrible incident. But they really had planned on trying to use aerosolized LSD on a number of leftist leaders. ABC News said they had a hit list of leftist leaders around the world to dose with LSD, and partly through aerosolizing it, they tried to dose Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and Kwame Nkrumah, of, you know, an African leader, and others that way. So they... You know, they were really weaponizing it, uh, LSD at that time, sure. And, I mean, imagine if you were to aerosol LSD and spray it over a battlefield and disorient the enemy combatants, or I guess what would they do, just sort of lay down yeah. and start tripping out? Is that the well, idea? Well, that was one idea, but, you know, they talked about that idea in the movie Jacob's Ladder, but the best documented use of it was actually found, and this is in, in uh, U.S. Senate Church Committee's documents on what they found that was actually used for, and this church committee report came out in, um, it was about the mid-1970s, and I showed it in my film, but it was basically the use, uh, you know, they were, they were going to use it surreptitiously, excuse me, on, you know, people at all social levels uh, of the United States and other countries, um, inside our countries, and so that's what they really used it for. They used it to dose all kinds of people who were, you know, basically protesting their pro-war uh, racist agenda. And so okay. I show in my book all kinds of examples of that. Well, when I think of LSD being introduced into the United States, mm-hmm. um, initially, I mean, I don't even think of the CIA. I think of, like, the Merry Pranksters and their, their, uh, their Kool-Aid acid tests. Sure. So yeah. to what extent... Were the merry pranksters? Were they being, were they being manipulated by the CIA, or yeah. did the CIA realize that the merry pranksters were were using it, so they had to figure out how they could use it too? Well, well I'll, I'll start with the fact that Timothy Leary was one of you know one of many professors at about fifty different colleges around the country, where they were given money through a CIA front company, the Human Ecology Fund to test psychedelics on students. They'd pay them with the equivalent of $150 today to just try acid or try psychedelic mushrooms. Now, psychedelic mushrooms I I really don't go into in in my book because I haven't really found the same kind of, uh, you know, as it says, an extreme of harmful effects as the acid. The acid seems to, you know, develop more problems in people. 
But when they started using the acid on, on students, it was really introducing it to a lot of people. But it was also they found that it could, when people were tripping a lot, it was much easier to manipulate them, even when they were coming came down from their tripping. It just caused enough uh, emotional instability that they were more easily manipulated. So um, Timothy Leary was doing that. They got kicked out of Harvard, him and his fellow professors like Richard Alpert and one or two other professors. And so the Mellon Hitchcock family then gave them tons of money to start these acid uh, bases, headquarters in different parts of the country and even Mexico. Um, and so, you know, that's when they, they gave, um, the Mellon Hitchcock family gave a huge mansion with a 3,000-acre estate just north of New York City for them to uh, lure, you know, a constant party up there for, for a number of years where MKS, uh, MK Ultra scientists were just hanging out, trying out different, you know, psychedelics on every, all the people that were lured up there. Now, the same thing I showed a parallel happened with what you said were the Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters in San Francisco, except it started in a different way. With uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, Kesey was a uh, graduate student in writing in uh, the Stanford, uh, in Stanford University. He was also an alternate on the Olympic wrestling team. And he was actually so straight that he he'd never really gotten stoned off weed. Um, so he barely even ever got drunk in his life. Um, because of his wrestling for, for many years, but um, he needed money. And so when he saw those experiments in Stanford, he, he accepted the money to do the experiment with the psychedelics. And then, so he, he went through the experiment, and then after that they offered him a job at the same hospital, Stanford-based hospital, where he did the experiment. And so he was doing janitorial work there, and he had already been writing uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest there and ended up um, publishing that. But um, they gave him, after he was, you know, almost finished his draft of One Blue Over the Cuckoo's Nest while he was working there at the uh, hospital, um, they also gave him keys that allowed him, uh, you know, access to all the acid they were using there for their experiments. And so, the, um, you know, they pretended like they just allowed him all, unlimited to steal unlimited amounts of acid, but that's what he did. And then he had constant parties at his house with that acid. And so uh, from there... They surrounded him with people, a bunch of people that had been in the military. Ken Babs, uh, Stuart Brand, and a number of people. I have them one John, I've got a, about them. Military. John, pardon the interruption. John, I've yeah. got to jump in here. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come right. back you to delve into uh, the CIA war on musicians and activists. John Potash, my guest. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hey, welcome back. John Potash is here for the full two hours. And he has a brand new documentary out uh, that is based on his uh, 2015 book, uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And we're talking about the CIA's war uh, on musicians. War, their war on rock, uh, really. And um, we, were, we were talking about the introduction to, of, of LSD. You have talked. You and I have talked about this before, but how important were the Beatles um, in introducing or helping to introduce uh, drugs into the culture? Yeah, I want to get into that, and that's, that's a good lead-in. But I just want to finish about that situation with the Merry Pranksters. What oh happened yes, with, thank you. Yeah, no problem. But Kesey, so Kesey 
We're throwing these regular acid parties there. Mary Pranks just formed around Kesey and those acid uh, parties around Stanford, and uh, that, that those were happening right around the time of the uh, free speech movement at Berkeley. And I show that's no coincidence. They were trying to undermine activism in all the hotbeds of activism around the country, both New York City and the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, particularly Berkeley and the free speech movement, which was huge. And so those, a lot of those guys were civil rights activists also, as well as they started becoming anti-war activists you know, a year or two later. But this was all around about 1965 when the Vietnam War was getting much bigger. And so a bunch of people that were in the military surrounded Kesey. Um, I have Stuart Brand talking about his role as second lieutenant in the military. Um, he said how this, the, what, who, the second in command to Kesey with the Merry Pranksters, a guy named Ken Babs, had, had been in Vietnam also. And how they, when Kesey, uh, so Kesey basically uh, started a, uh, a bus ride from San Francisco to New York for the World's Fair, and it was like a psychedelic bus ride that uh, was, you know, promoting LSD all over the country. Now he was kind of talked into that this idea, but he was, you know, part of it and kind of led it. Um, and so they actually their route ended up being all through the uh, civil rights South areas. And so they were actually introducing acid, or trying to, to a number of black areas of, uh, you know, the South. And, um, and then they end up in New York, and they go through Harlem with their psychedelic bus. And so right after the Harlem riots, the Harlem race riots, or race rebellions, you know, activists call them. So then they come back to the San Francisco Bay Area, and they start the acid test. And the acid test had the band The Grateful Dead play for them. And they became, each one became larger. The second one became larger, you know, larger than the first, and then the third larger than that. But sometime around the second or third acid test, Kesey said, "I'm done with this. I don't want to promote acid anymore. I want to have a party where we say it's time for people to graduate from acid." But uh, right after he he announced that um, and said, "Let's do that. Let's not tell people to graduate from acid," the police come and arrest him. And I show that there was no, you know, coincidence because uh, so once he was arrested and they kept him from, you know, leading the group, Ken Babs, you know, ignores what he said he wanted to do and throws a much bigger acid test and then throws what they call the Trips Festival with Stuart Brand, both, you know, fresh out of the military. And that's a, a giant acid test that uh, where... You know, tons of people, all these acid tests, people would come and not, all, you know, automatically know that these vats of Kool-Aid were, had tons of LSD in them and were dosed involuntarily. Some people knew, but a lot of people didn't. But what was found out was the fact that um, a guy named John Gittinger was the top M- uh, psychologist for MKUltra, CIA's MKUltra program, uh, came with two other CIA scientists to a number of those acid tests and described how two more MKUltra operatives were also with them at the TRIPS Festival. And so it was loaded with some of these MKUltra agents undercover, and I argue that it's because they were, they were directing these uh, you know, operations and show the evidence of that. But so when the Beatles rose up, um, in 1965, the uh, uh, deputy director of MKUltra, Robert Lashbrook, um, came over to London, and, uh, Robert, and uh, A. E. Hotchner, Ernest Hemingway's longtime editor said in his excellent book about the uh, Rolling Stones, a book called Blown Away, he said that uh, Lashbrook came over to London in 65 with loads of agents, loads of money, and loads of LSD. 
and he directed his agents to get the LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so I argue that the reason for that was to get these musicians to inadvertently promote acid and uh, and really divert the anti-war movement and the uh, and you know the civil rights movement. You know all these uh, young young people that were getting involved in this activism. Once they got to tripping and doing lots of drugs, they were just diverted from their best work. And often some dropped out, some continued it, but it was hard to keep uh, do it as well when you were kind of un, you know emotionally kind of uh, destabilized by all the drug use. And couldn't so, you, uh, John? So, though couldn't you argue? Couldn't you one argue that LSD actually did more to sort of awaken people to what was going on? Uh, you know, a lot of bands became political, you could argue, as a result of maybe doing their first LSD hit. Before that, they were singing Love Me Do, and then all of a sudden, along comes this whole psychedelic movement, and then they start talking about, you know, no more war. So didn't couldn't it have had the opposite effect? Well, that's what they want us to think, and that's what I thought for many years. Um, the, but when I went to the quotes of people like John Lennon and, uh, you know, even the, you know, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, a lot of these guys were actually, they said we were political before any of the drugs, and uh, we were against the war from day one, and... Uh, you know, and what what happened was that they, uh, you know, they knew that, and they studied these musicians, these you know, at the top, and so what they what they found from their own studies on acid, you know, testing on people for years, for you know, they tested throughout the 1950s and early 1960s before they operationally used it against these musicians, and the reason is because they found that that deep it actually hurt their best abilities to uh, be become activists. And it was more the, the the movements that politicized the musicians. It wasn't the acid that politicized them. It's just they, the acid came on strong from the the U.S. intelligence and British intelligence, um, and it just it happened at the same time. And it really was not the uh, acid that <laughs> politicized them at all. I'm sorry to say that's the, I just showed the evidence that that's the way it really worked. And so. John Lennon says this in his quotes. We were we were against the war from day one in 1964. First time we started hearing more about the war, we were against the war. And um, but once they uh, you know once they were dosed, and that's what happened. John Lennon, and George Harrison's uh, were at at a party with George Harrison's Dennis. It was basically a dinner party with just the four them and their their partners. You know, John Lennon's wife and George Harrison's girlfriend with uh, the dentist and his girlfriend. And they drank some coffee that was dosed with acid without realizing it. Lennon was furious. George Harrison said, what's LSD? I've never heard of it. What, what is that? And they were tripping. And so, you know, what? after that, so why did this dentist do this? Why did he risk so much to do this? The only way he would risk some of that if he knew he was uh, basically had immunity from the law because he was part of the law because he's part of Lashbrook's group that was trying to get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so um, the same thing happened with Mick Jagger, where he held out from using acid until 1967. And meanwhile, he had already written some, you know, great songs against the war, just a shot away, and uh, you know, different other songs that were against the war. He said we were against the war. He said, you know, me and Mick Jones, me and Brian Jones, went to some, uh, you know, anti-Vietnam War rallies. And uh, and then so in 1967, he's he's holding out, not trying acid, even though the rest of the band had. And here comes uh, Dave Schneiderman, undercover 
MI5 and FBI agent, according to the Daily Mail. And the Daily Mail said that that's who gave you know Mick Jagger and convinced him to try acid for the first time in 1967 at a party. And hours later, the police come in and bust it up, and they arrest everyone, but they don't arrest Schneiderman. He's got a briefcase full of drugs. And they uh, now have them under legal authority's thumb. They have Jagger and uh, you know other members of Stones under their thumb legally. Now, I argue the same thing was happening with Jones, but Jones was then set up in a different way and then murdered, and I talk about that in detail in my book, but sadly right. in my uh, film I, I had, it had to be cut out. Um, but in the, um, you know, I, I show that the same thing was going on in the United States in different ways. But in the United States, they set up the whole Laurel Canyon scene was a big setup to get as many British musicians who were a little bit less controlled than the American musicians, um, and to get them to use acid again because the, the next time, you know, John Lennon and George Harrison. And uh, actually, Ringo used acid. You know, it was uh, at a party with uh, Dave Crosby and Peter Fonda and people. And uh, it was near the Laurel Canyon scene where a lot of evidence, uh, there's a lot of evidence that that was a manufactured scene. It was manufactured by U.S. intelligence. The same way they manufactured the Ken Kesey, you know, acid test scene and the whole Haight-Ashbury scene where I, I quote, uh, undercover agent saying that we had loads of agents all over the Heat Ashbury area with you know. Well, let me well let me ask you about Heat Ashbury. Let me ask you about Heat Ashbury. We're heading into a break here very shortly, but I'll sure. I'll, I'll ask the question and we'll get to it after. And that has to do with when we talk about Heat Ashbury, we have to talk about the Grateful Dead. Sure. And um, the 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 the, uh, the guy that really created sort of their sound, the wall of sound. It was a brilliant recording engineer, but also was the money behind the band, Owsley Stanley III, who I believe was the grandson of a Kentucky governor. And he right. was at one time producing more, I think, more acid than anybody, um, any private citizen in the United States. Was Owsley Stanley working for the CIA? Yeah, I mean, the best evidence is, I mean, when you look, that it, this is the pattern of these top acid Traffickers uh, with Mellon Hitchcock, who I mentioned earlier, who gave their mansion to uh, Timothy Leary. They also gave all the money to, to set up, you know, as, uh, headquarters for acid, you know, promoting all over the country. And uh, John, I'm sorry, I got I to jump in here again. We'll, sure, uh, we'll pick we'll up on this point this uh, on the other side. We'll, we'll discuss Owsley Stanley, John Potish, drugs as weapons against us, as we discuss the CIA's war on rock, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. John Potash stays with us. A brand new documentary uh, now available, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And we're talking about the CIA's war on musicians and activists. And John, once again, how do people uh, see this uh, terrific documentary? Yeah, thanks. So you can see a trailer and where you can rent it you know, and or buy it at drugsasweapons.com and uh, that's got a link for more details on the movie at, you know, which is also at drugsasweaponsmovie.com uh, you had asked about Augustus Owsley Stanley III commonly known as Owsley and I was comparing it to the Mellon Hitchcock family that had launched Timothy Leary and set up these bases for the psychedelic foundation all over the country so the Mellon Hitchcocks as I said before they own Mellon Bank they own Gough Oil 
but they also had a number of members in the highest levels of U.S. intelligence at one time. And so they were intimately connected with U.S. intelligence, and they were surely promoting CIA's project MKUltra, which had 199 sub-projects. And so with Stanley, as you said, is, is, uh, he came from Kentucky, where his family had been governor, had been a senator. A whole county was named uh, Owsley County after his family. And so here he is. He's partnered up with his girlfriend, is Mary Cargill. Now, the Cargill Chemical Company is the largest privately owned company in the country. So um, the ultra-rich are basically behind this acid, and they also have intelligence connections. And so, yes, Owsley is the biggest supplier of acid, but I also interviewed Hank Harrison for about two hours. And he was the original manager of the Grateful Dead. So he was their first manager, and he said he, he fought with Owsley over the direction of the dead because Owsley, he said, was incredibly right-wing politically, whereas Harrison said he was much more left-wing and aligned with leftist organizers like Saul Alinsky, people like that. And so he lost to Owsley, and Owsley and his right-wing politics and his incredible amounts of money and incredible amounts of drugs won out, of course, because Harrison said he was also into tempering the amount of drug use. So that was what was behind the Grateful Dead, sadly enough. Now, it's interesting, before I was talking about the situation with Lenin and Lenin being manipulated by tons of people around him to try acid again, even though he had a bad experience when he was dosed the first time. And so after he, he tried it again, he thought, okay, maybe it's not that bad, and he used it a lot more, obviously. But George Harrison stopped completely in 1967, so he's, he's never using it again. But people around them convinced Lenin and Harrison and the rest of the Beatles to you know, launch kind of promotion for Acid Bud with the Magical Mystery Tour, which shows them on a bus on the album cover. And that bus, and people kind of knew, was supposed to represent the bus of the Merry Pranksters touring, going across the country. And, of course, the Who had their Magic Bus song, and, and they ended up all promoting that kind of Acid celebration, sadly enough. And the reason was, I argue, was to promote it to the movement in general because the Students for Democratic Society was the largest anti-war movement in the country's ever seen. It was growing each year to the point that by 1969 it was 100,000 strong. They were also very involved in the civil rights movement. And um, you know, first they were involved as freedom riders, went down south you know, to help the Martin Luther King and his, his work, and Student Nonviolent coordinating, coordinating Committee they were a big part of. Uh, this uh, committee on, uh, I'm sorry, uh, racial equality was a big anti-war group that that overlapped the members of Students for Democratic Society. But spreading acid and promoting it like crazy was partially to promote it to this idealistic youth and uh, to divert them from their best work. Let's go back to the Grateful Dead for a moment. Without LSD, there probably wouldn't have been a Grateful Dead. I mean, they started off playing in a pizza parlor. They were called the Warlocks. Without that infusion, without LSD, there's no psychedelic movement. I'm a fan of that particular genre of music. I mean, uh, yeah, perhaps I like the, the origins I, are... I, I, liked it, I liked it a lot, too. And I, I only started disliking it when I um, you know, researched so much for, uh, for all this. And uh, just because that, you know, yes, the, the psychedelic sound was, was fine and good, but you also had U.S. intelligence. Um, you know, they actually, you know, Rolling Stone said that they were known for their incredible sound. And their sound, U.S. intelligence, is decades in, you know, in front of the rest of society. I mean, they have technology that, that they don't release the rest of society, society 
for 20 or 30 years. And uh, that's the way it works. I mean, I, you know, I do counseling in the Baltimore, Washington area. And by having done that for decades, I've talked to people that are in U.S. intelligence have, you know, conveyed this stuff to me about the way they keep uh, technology from the rest of society for decades. And so, they, yes, you know, intelligence gave them this incredible sound. Not that I, you know, it couldn't have been good anyway, but it made it really made them stand out more than other bands. And uh, I just argue that, um, you know, a lot of that, that's part of how they got so big. I mean, they, they, the first acid test that they played at, there was very few people there. It was really the only people there were the pranksters. And then, you know, with a huge promotion, it got bigger and bigger each acid test. But that was their start. And um, so, you know, it's uh, that's the way it happens with a lot of these bands is, with the ones that will promote the drugs get the huge promotion, and a lot of that huge promotion is, uh, they call it, you know, in the PR industry, they call it astroturf campaigns, meaning, meaning fake grassroots. So what looks like grassroots promotion is actually coming from big money and made to look uh, under, you know, underground or grassroots. And so yeah, they rise up quickly, and you know, there you go. Well, LSD was was legal uh, in California, certainly, I think, until 1966. Right. If the plan was to get, you know, an entire generation and the whole anti-war movement uh, on LSD, why wouldn't they have maneuvered the the um, the elections and so forth uh, in order to prevent LSD from becoming illegal? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's keep yeah. it legal uh, yeah. and make it more accessible. Well, I, I argue that it's, it's the nature of most drugs is is when they become illegal, they, they seem more mystifying. And uh, now there's a battle. There was a battle amongst psychiatrists. Psychiatrists were using it on patients for years, but there was also studies saying that it was hurting people's minds, and uh, you know it was causing some psychosis. It was causing you know extreme anxiety. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll pick up on that on the other side, John. We'll have to sure, uh, no step problem. away for a moment, come back. John Potash, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Check out his new documentary. We'll uh, tell you how you can see it when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. Again, John, tell us how we can see it. Yeah, you can uh, see that you can uh, find all the places it's for sale um, and for rent, places like Voodoo.com, Vimeo, iTunes, Microsoft Xbox, places like that. It's for sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, uh, Walmart and Target even sell it. Um, but uh, and you can find it, you know, find these places on drugsisweapons.com. So I was getting into the, uh, you know, we were talking about the legalization and criminalization of, of LSD, and I'll just say that, um, you know, in the early early to mid 70s, uh, top trafficker for LSD in the world, a guy named Ronald Stark, was uh, kind of arrested by Italian police, and uh, top investigator of his his huge network of, of acid trafficking, Dick Lee found that in Britain alone, in just three years, he had manufactured and sold over 100 million hits of LSD, his network, uh, Ron Stark. And so the first Italian judge that presided over his case was murdered, 
second judge that presided over his case let him go, saying that he had offered uh, enough proofs that he had been working for the Secret Services and U.S. intelligence since 1960, and he couldn't hold him any longer. Um, and an Italian parliamentary commission said that, yes, Ron Stark was working for U.S. intelligence, you know, uh, his entire career, it appeared, and had acid laboratories and acid networks, you know, trafficking acid in at least three different continents. And so um, that they were getting it all over the place. So le- legal or not legal didn't matter. Um, but it being illegal did seem to make it more alluring. But at the same time, it might have been criminalized by some scientists who just said, you know, this is, this is causing problems in people. Now, was the LSD, pure LSD itself, causing problems in people? I'm not 100% positive, but the uh, government study shows it was at least a quarter of people, soldiers it was tested on 19 years later said they were still having negative effects from the LSD they took 19 years before. But um, they do know that it, it was at strychnine, rat poison was added to it and cut, you know, it was cut with strychnine for, for long periods of time, for decades, and still to today it's considered a, a major thing that LSD is cut with according to the top sources on, on acid. And uh, so when you take acid, there's a good chance you're, you're also taking rat poison. And so that's doing something harmful to our brains. And so I, I just tried a half dozen hits myself in college. And I was uh, very into activism in the beginning of college, but I thought I'd really damaged my mind with those half dozen hits. And um, so I, I just laid off and uh, it took a while. It took about a year, year and a half at least to get my grades back up. But I didn't think much of it. I still was so uh, believing that acid was part of the uh, 60s idealism, and um, I had a hard time accepting that it, it wasn't something somehow positive. And uh, I was into the Grateful Dead and a lot of other bands. Um, it took me a number of years of doing counseling with other people to hear all these other people's reports of the way it hurt them, including some, some clients who woke up each morning with such high anxiety they threw up and they were people that were big on the Grateful Dead and followed the Grateful Dead and done loads of acid. So, you know, it's just what I found when found the studies and everything else that support this. Um, so how, how does this work? If a musician starts to get political and he's signed to a major label and he decides he wants his album or the band's album to feature a number of anti-war uh, songs, for example, if we're talking about the Vietnam era, mm-hmm. uh, and the R and R person at, or the producer says, "No, I don't, I don't like that song," or what have you, uh, it still gets out there. I mean, there were there were protest songs that were very popular uh, yeah. in in uh, the ni- in the nineteen sixties. I think of um, uh, Sky Pilots, uh, right? Eric Bird and the Animals, and I right. think of and, and that's no, great. So, yeah, oh yeah, there were, there is great. Some some great anti-war songs, but the way it tended to work is it was the movement that that you know the movement the growing anti-war movement which was so got so huge as I said a hundred thousand strong by 1969 just one group Students for Democratic Society and there were other groups that were against the Vietnam War that were just became so strong and became such a huge part of society that they pushed the music to uh, catch up with them usually and that's the way it always worked the civil rights movement the same way. They always said they had to push musicians, and it's them doing their work on the streets that the musicians tried to catch up and, and catch on with, with that. Now, not that you know they weren't, like people like John Lennon didn't say, well, we're against the war, but to actually get out there with all this you know, strong anti-war 
message in their songs, it was usually them catching up to the movement, not them leading the movement. But when it came right. to promoting the drugs, that, that was done in a in pretty major way, you know, in terms of having the stuff on the, the album covers and the songs and all that. And that was promoted more than the, the activist songs you know, in a major way. The, the drugs was always promoted war, and it was done by the assets of U.S. intelligence. Uh, so I have a whole section or two on the media in my book, um, but also in the film a bit, showing how um, the oligarchs basically uh, own most of the media and, uh, you know, things about, of course, the Senate Church Committee found that well over 400 members of the media lived dual lives in the work for the CIA, and those included virtually every head of every major uh, media corporation. But if if the end game is to manipulate and control, let's say, the anti-war movement, and you have artists that want to sing protest songs, why wouldn't they cut it off? Uh, why wouldn't the recording label cut it off and, and say, like, say the producers, no, we're not including that song on the album? They why would they allow that stuff to get through? I argue that they, they, they censor loads of activist songs and messages. The ones that get through are just the milder ones, and loads of activist bands never got known. Um, you know, and that happens to today. I mean, you know, even Rage Against the Machine being uh, not led to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they're just one of the top bands of all time, but it just in general, I mean, you hear that about rap. I mean, you know, for example, with rap labels, um, and rap music, they, uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy says they constantly promote the most negative rap and, and really suppress and don't give publicity to the most activist rap. And uh, that's just the way it's, it's been. And the stuff that does get out is the stuff that barely ekes out despite all the uh, other activist bands not getting promoted and all the activist songs that were written that don't get out there. And so, you know, you look at John Lennon's more activist uh, time of his life that stuff didn't get promoted anywhere near as much as his more, you know, his drug songs with the Beatles. When we come back in the second hour, we'll get into the specific targeting of certain musicians, uh, I guess, who went off script, who could no longer be controlled uh, by their by management and so forth. Uh, just in the couple of minutes that uh, remain, or a minute here before we go into the break at the top of the hour, the the music for your documentary was. Uh, uh, Composed by Tupac's half brother, was it not? Yeah, Mopreem Shakur, and uh, he's got a great rap song in the, in the uh, documentary, which I'm really happy about. And um, Electric Cult Circus uh, is a Columbus, Ohio band that did did some great music throughout the film, also, as well as did another they, rapper named Trey D and Collective Flow. Did they compose that specifically for the documentary? No, they had already composed that music, which just fit very well with the documentary. And but you got obviously you got permission to use yeah, it. They so gave me rights for it, yeah, sure. And and uh, did Tupac uh, Tupac's uh, stepbrother watch the film and had he read the book prior to giving you permission to use the music? Yeah, he read the book, and um, and then he you know he's gotten the film since it's finally gotten produced. It just came out, of course, just a few days ago. Fantastic. All right. Well, when we come back, let's get into. Uh, the the targeting of specific musicians like Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, John Lennon, uh, and much and much much more. Uh, John Potash is with us, and uh, the documentary is "Drugs as Weapons Against Us." 
the CIA's war on musicians and activists. And um, we've got about a minute here, I guess. Uh, once again, just tell us quickly how we can see the documentary. Sure. It's, um, you could buy it either at Amazon or iTunes or uh, Barnes & Noble or Best Buy or Walmart or Target. Um, or you can rent it from Vudu or Vimeo um, or uh, Microsoft Xbox or Google Play or YouTube rent of movies and places like that. And uh, you can find these places easily at drugsisweapons.com. Excellent. Okay, John, Thanks, stay sir. with us. Back for hour two in a moment. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. 